1: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with the China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. As some of our listeners know, we've been running the Fantastic Strangers in China podcast. It's in its third season. Uh, It is richly reported. It's a first-person account of the lockdown as experienced by an American, our host, Clay Baldo, uh, living in Shanghai. There is a ton in there necessarily about the Ju Wei Hui, or the Neighborhood Committee, and it's a really good illustration of both the expanded powers and responsibilities of Neighborhood Committees during the lockdown and the unreasonable load that they seem to have been suddenly saddled with, all out of proportion to their capacity, their training, their resources. They are not the villain of the story, although they're often maddening and, and annoying, uh, but they are not the villain of Clay's story. Clay is really empathetic, and the picture that emerges is is really a complex one. So today on Seneca, we are going to talk about some of what Clay witnessed in Shanghai at the ground level in spring of 2022, but this time from a more academic perspective, looking at how during the pandemic, we witnessed a massive expansion of the administrative state in China, uh, an expansion downward toward the grassroots through the subdistrict and community levels of administration. So joining me to talk about this is Tai Su Zhang, who is professor of law at Yale Law School. He's the author of a couple of books of Ideological Foundations of Qing Taxation and The Laws and Economics of Confucianism, Kinship and property in pre industrial China and England. We'll be talking about a paper that Taisu co authored with Yutian An, a PhD candidate at Princeton, called Pandemic State Building Chinese Administrative Expansion in the Xi Jinping Era, as well as a really thought provoking essay that he recently published in Foreign Affairs about China's efforts to. To really shift the foundations of political legitimacy more toward legality as the tailwind of high GDP growth no longer really fills the sails of political legitimacy in the way that it has for several decades now. Um, as we will see, these two things, the paper and the foreign affairs essay, are related. They really dovetail nicely. Anyway, a long overdue welcome to you, Taisu. Uh, so glad that I could finally get you on Seneca.
0: Well, glad to be here. Been looking forward to this for a long time.
1: Oh, good, 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 good. Well, let's get started. Uh, let's talk about your essay first in Foreign Affairs, which was published on February twenty seventh, and it was titled Seize Law and Order Strategy: The CCP's Quest for a Fresh Source of Legitimacy." So, in it, you argue that the party has traditionally relied on what we've come to call performance legitimacy—it's its ability to deliver social stability and especially growth economic you know well-being yeah so before we get into what it's now banking on to bolster legitimacy i want to talk about this intriguing and you know on reading it i think to me at least a totally persuasive idea that nationalism which people often talk about as like a separate pillar of political legitimacy nationalism actually also rests on economic performance. So maybe before we jump in, maybe you can unpack that idea a little bit. In what way does nationalism rest ultimately on economic performance?
0: Great. Uh, So there are different kinds of nationalisms in the world. The kind that you see most often, perhaps elsewhere in the world, either in Japan, South Korea, India, even, even the United States, is rooted in a sense of, what you might describe as like organically national values. Mm -hmm. Basically, these are nationalisms that are built upon some kind of cultural identity or some kind of uh, normative, some set of normative values. Any proclamation that, you know, like we are this kind of people, we follow this kind of value, Americans will say we love freedom, and democracy, the Japanese will proclaim a certain kind of Shinto religion-oriented religious worldview and so on and so forth. And like Hindu nationalism has its own variety of these things tied with imagined pasts. Certainly certainly that these are not perhaps concrete actual historical pasts, but they're imagined pasts that have a certain kind of a deep relative content to it. Now, in contrast to that kind of nationalism, the current dominant kind of nationalism that I see in China these days is largely a materialistic one. Hmm. You need to press like your average nationalist Vapor commentator on the mainland, you know, like, why is he like, obviously, these are all people who are often justifiably proud of their country for various kinds of accomplishments. If you press them, why are they proud to be Chinese or why do they think that being Chinese is so great? They're usually not necessarily going to give you kind of much of the normative answer. They're not going to say being Chinese means holding, holding up certain kinds of values and we do this in a certain kind of way that makes us proud. More often, they're going to basically say, "Being Chinese is is something worthy of pride because China has been so successful over the past couple of decades in performing this economic miracle and lifting its people out of poverty and gaining status and might and power and influence across the globe." Um. So, to a large extent, the sense of nationalistic pride you see in China these days is itself fundamentally a performance of this kind of nationalism, and you know, whereas to, to most Chinese, this is simply just intuitively how nationalism is supposed to work. If you contrast that with other kinds of nationalisms that are prevalent across Eurasia, you'd probably be kind of blind to not notice that this is actually rather unique to the Chinese context. Most other nationalisms are less materialistic. Um, they ground their sense of national identity in values. Um whereas the Chinese kind of nationalism has perhaps gestured towards values here and there in the past, but fundamentally the real source of coherence of consolidation of of pride um is china's material performance
1: you know it's surprising only to me that that I haven't heard this idea articulated elsewhere before uh that's that's very i find that to be very very persuasive so uh I think you know, if I had just read that part of your essay already, I would have been, you know, retweeting it. <laughs> <But> it, <laughs> it was great. It was. Uh, l- let's just go on though, because I think the thrust of your argument in the piece is that faced with the end of really fast growth and you know having yeah. seen quite a bit of d- dissatisfaction in the COVID lockdowns and and to some extent in the sudden about face that yeah. uh, ended zero COVID you know, and, and saw the virus just basically get everybody, <laughs> Yeah, uh, the yeah. party is now placing renewed emphasis on law, uh, but not on law necessarily as a tool of coercion or repression, you know, nor, I think I should, it's important to add, nor on the idea of rule of law as we understand it in the West, but yes. on law as a basis of legitimacy itself, as you put it, playing on the human tendency to accept law as reason so this is a really big idea let's pick this apart a bit and start by differentiating what you're talking about uh when you say uh this is different from the idea of the rule of
0: law right um so actually before we get into that, let me just make one qualification like i would say you know like the party still draws a huge amount of support from performance based legitimacy yeah. like the economy is slowing it's not as far as I can feel collapsing sure um, this particular year, I expect with the end of the lockdowns, growth is going to be relatively robust, and there might be kind of going to reprieve. That said, yes, like the, the long-term structural circumstances of the Chinese economy are concerning, like especially the demographics and things like government debt. So yeah, like over the next five to ten years, I think the state's ability to draw social support simply based on economic performance alone is going to weaken, if not quite weaken too rapidly over time. Sure. Which means that, yeah, they need something that's not tied to that kind of economic performance to bolster of them, their social support. And so, yeah, this is where law comes in. Now, you asked what is uh, the difference between rule of law and the kind of legality that I talk about. Well, so rule of law is not so much a legal concept as it is a political concept, right? A normative concept, right? normative political concept, right? It's It's mainly about the idea that every regular actor in the state, every regular policymaker, every regular lawmaker uh, should be subject to some kind of pretty significant legal constraint on that person's power. Like no one should really be above the law, even if the law itself does not try to reach certain kinds of heights. So from that perspective, you know, China is obviously not a rule of law country by that definition, because you know the Chinese law itself does not purport, really to control the actions and the, the decisions, or to limit them um, of, their, of the of the central party leadership. Right there's there's right. a certain segment of the Chinese party state that by the actual design of the law is above it above it, and it's not illegal for them to be above it because the law simply says nothing about what they can they can or cannot do. The most any Chinese law ever says about this kind of stuff is the constitution that says the Chinese Communist Party leads China. So, you know, like there there are no legal checks on the actual power of the central party leadership, and again, that's by design, which means, you know, China is not really cool to be a rule of law country as long as that holds. Now, that said, um, that doesn't mean that it can't be a law-oriented country in the sense that at least insofar as the written laws would seem, based on their own textual meaning, to apply to certain kinds of state activities or private activities, um, those laws are enforced rigorously and professionally. Right. And that's the main thing here, right? Like it's to, to 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 perhaps really crudely capture this is it's that for everyone except the central party leadership and this overall party state apparatus and increasingly even party organs, um, those who wield power are being directed by the Central Party leadership to wield them according to legal doctrines, and legal commandments. And they're increasingly being asked to do so in a more professionalized, uh, top-down, and legalistic fashion than they were used to. And the, my argument is that this in, a, in and of itself creates a certain kind of legitimacy as perceived by the public. Because as you were studying that quote, this is like a common quote that you find in like Weber and all kinds of uh, early... Early 20th century sociologists, political theorists, populations have a tendency to take law as reason because, in the end, you know, like most people on the ground don't necessarily reason from first principles when they think about the legitimacy of a governmental action. They look for pro- they look for various kinds of proxies, right? And one of the most powerful proxies is law because law has a ritualistic, formalistic element that gives it a year of authority. And when you can observe on a relatively reliable basis in your everyday life, that state actors and other private actors are largely acting in accordance accordance to the law, that force of habit, that force of authoritative habits, tends to make you think that what they're doing is legitimate. They're following rules, they're not behaving arbitrarily, they're obeying the general perceived rules of society as we've all kind of agreed upon them, issued by some kind of authoritative body.
1: And for you guys, this this doesn't come out of nowhere either. You explore this idea, you test this proposition in this paper that you co-wrote with Iching Fu and Iching Xu yes. at Stanford. Uh yep. it's called. This is a paper called "Does Legality Produce Legitimacy," uh, which is based on survey research uh, with urban Chinese, designed to you know to test this idea that even stripped of actual rule of law, as we've said. Yes. Uh, the idea of legality actually does reinforce political legitimacy. So can you briefly summarize what those findings were? This great. is in the other paper that I wanted to yeah. talk about. I, I yeah. just want to use this in support of, because you know your, your essay in Foreign Affairs is actually quite short, and you don't go into the empirical you know study yeah, that yeah. underpins this. But, so I wanted to give you a chance to do that here.
0: Yeah, great. Um, so, thanks for that opportunity. That, 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 that's a, quite important. So there's a common perception in Western political theory that law itself is usually not enough to produce social perceptions of legitimacy. The idea is that you know like people value law not for law itself, but rather for the substantive moral content that the law embodies. This is an especially popular idea in the post-Cold War world, where you know, liberalism is dominant and you think of law not as an isolated, skinny thing, but rather as a full... Set of ideological, like ideological commitments towards liberalism, towards democracy, towards freedom, and so on and so forth. So, for most political theorists, I think in the Western world, they think that you know, for the populations they observe, which are mainly Western ones, if law is being applied to normatively bad ends, the people aren't going to respect law itself. People right. are going to desire the the ends to be fixed, and so hence, like you know, like my colleagues in the Yale Law School building, or a lot of other political theorists would say. If law is being used to serve illiberal liberal ends, no matter how legalistic it is, if it's being used to not pursue a certain vision of justice, um, then it doesn't really matter what, what how legalistic or how formalistic or how professionalized your legal apparatus is. People aren't going to think that a government action is legitimate just because it's legal. And what I want to basically argue is that in some other contexts where the law has, over the past century or two, gained a more technocratic and perhaps normatively neutral meaning, that law, just pure law itself, pure legality, um, can be a source of political literacy, And so we test this through a variety of survey experiments. If you want, we can go more deeply into how- the super- I do, I do.
1: I want to hear the, the research design because it's fascinating. I also want to ask whether you have any comparative data, whether you, you, you looked at other societies where there yeah. have been comparable experiments yeah. set up where- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: we, we have not. That will be the next stage of what we're going to do in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. But a lot of, there has been a lot of research on this. You know, like Tom Tyler, my colleague here, has a series of really authoritative articles on how uh, you know, police law enforcement action is perceived in the U.S. And what what he finds, I think, which is um, perhaps the, the the conventional wisdom in the West, is that if police action doesn't meet like a basic substantive amount of what he calls procedural justice, in that it doesn't seem fair enough, it doesn't seem responsive enough, it doesn't seem respectful enough, it doesn't really matter whether the police enforcement action is technically full will be the be, better be of the law. It's not going to be perceived as legitimate by the population. Right. Uh, whereas what we find is that even if you strip law of virtually all of its possible liberal connotations, you use law to control and and, and constrain rather than to empower, you use law to enforce state commandments rather than to empower private liberties, uh, even if you use law in a way that doesn't necessarily prove economically beneficial in the end, as long as your governmental actions are based on law, as opposed to being based on some non-legal government fiat. The Chinese urban population that we surveyed seems to respond pretty positively towards just the sheer introduction of law itself. You don't need liberal commitments. You don't need rights. You don't need freedoms. You don't need the rule of law in the sense of checking or balancing governmental power. You don't need even like, the use of law for their economic goals. You can strip away all those things in the survey experience, and you're just left with something that we call, that we call like raw or pure legality,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: they're still going to respond positively towards that, not, perhaps not quite as positively as they might respond to some of the substantive stuff, but still positively enough that it makes a real difference.
1: Right. Interesting. How how robust are those findings? I mean, how how the
0: findings how... are the findings are pretty strong. So the findings yeah. are consistent across a, a variety of factual patterns that we cooked up. up, like you know, we would give surveys survey to respondents a number of factual patterns. Uh, one pattern is you know, online censorship, uh, or alternatively, um, you know, fireworks controls during during the festival, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. content censorship in media like movies and TV series or just like government regulations of, of street-side vendors, a lot of different kinds of contexts that, have, that show there are different kinds of social reactions. Regardless of the context, you find pretty consistently across all of these these factual patterns that raw legality produces a sizable amount of perceived legitimacy by the respondents.
1: Kind of depressing, but uh, it's also a, it's not, a, not it's so a, surprising. It's
0: a little bit depressing, but I'm not necessarily sure how depressing it actually is, because frankly in a lot of ways that this is the kind of thing that makes the chinese population more governable sure,
1: sure sure but yeah i guess i guess my question is does this shift to an emphasis on legality? does it at least offer a toehold for people who are keen on promoting actual rule of law you know as we understand it i mean could we see more yeah. accountability to law from political elites uh, who are, are are not as you know subject to it right now I and mean, because right. of this, this is this like a first right, step
0: right right i mean people have made that argument quite a lot over the past 30 years. Like one very popular idea that was hugely popular in the 90s was that incremental movements towards legality, even if initially applied for non-liberal means, would eventually snowball towards a more liberal view of electoral law. The idea being that once people get more and more accustomed to law per se as being the basis of political action, that any political action that, that does not seem to have a legal basis is going to be questioned. right? So there's going to be a demand, like you know, like getting accustomed to law as a major source of legitimacy will produce more demand, right? so socially for more law. And so law keeps expanding, it snowballs, there's a certain kind of path dependency, and in perhaps 20 30 years, the end result is the government finds itself needing to bind itself by law everywhere for the public to actually accept its actions.
1: I sense that you don't buy that.
0: I I can see a road in which that's true. Okay. I can also see possible scenarios in which that does not materialize. It, it all depends on how much the government kind of lets the language of the law run wild. Right. Right, so if the government consistently like, maintains a very careful propaganda hold on how how expensive law is. Where it's a, for example, in a society in which legality eventually becomes the only source of perceived legitimacy. Then, yeah, that kind of snowballing is almost always going to happen because without the expansion of law, nothing is going to be justifiable to the public. But I think the Chinese government at this point is still pretty careful to not use law as its its only source of legitimacy. It's still searching for all kinds of other sources. And it's it's not going to give up on economic performance anytime soon. So as long as you have these other sources of legitimacy to balance law out, you can kind of constrain the, the, the natural creep of legality. And mm. when, you, when you do that, it's not necessarily true that there's going to be this strong snowballing effect.
1: That's, that's fascinating. Uh, one question is, I mean, right now we're in the time of the two meetings as we record. Yes. I, I'm sure you're watching it just like you know, me and the rest of us. But uh, what are you seeing coming out of the NPC or maybe even out of the 20th Party Congress back in November or the second plenum last month that... Um, seems to bear out what you're getting at in this essay are you seeing anything in this administrative restructuring
0: still let me put this one. like so the administrative restructuring that, that's currently happening in the two in, in the two meetings in, in the two offices right now is it lends itself to two different kinds of interpretations right? like if you're a real diehard liberal China critic, you can probably say this is the all if the further subsuming of the state's, Within the party, right? You're imposing the party as a kind of like a superstructure, and so on and so forth. Right. Alternatively, you could also say, which is the angle that I prefer, which is you know, like they're they're actually making the party a little bit more rules oriented. Yeah, the party is gaining control over what used to be known as the state organs of government, but at the same time, when while it's doing that, uh, the leadership seems intent on making the party more state-like and mm-hmm. how it substantially mm-hmm. functions. Right. So there's a merging of the two. The state side of things is becoming more subsumed within the party structure but the start of, but by doing that the party structure is also kind of almost being contaminated right. um, by the, the direction of influence
1: is not yeah. it's not a unidirectional yeah. m- influence
0: the, the, two right. side, the, the two sides really bleed into each other hmm. and I, I like my sense as the end product of all this is that the party is going to get more rule, rules oriented even as the state side of things is brought under perhaps like more careful political, uh, political control and so that does not necessarily contradict this overall message of legality. Plus, you know, on the rhetorical side, right? This is one thing that's been really stark. Like ever since twenty fourteen, the party leadership from Xi himself all the way down has, as far as I can tell, never wavered from its rhetorical commitment to yifat shivuah, which means governing the country according to law. Right? This has been one of its most consistent, most visible slogans. It's like it was there last fall. At the twentieth Party Congress, it's here again in the way this spring. Like it's occupying an increasingly prominent position. And, and like, when I was in Beijing last summer for family reasons, it seemed like every single time something went wrong uh, in the localities. Whether it was the Hunan like uh, health code scandal,
1: bank run thing,
0: yeah, uh, the bank the, the the bank bankruptcy that led to a health code scandal, where the shadow incidents where like local officials were apparently like popping up mafia that were behaving improperly. Like, every single time something went, on, went wrong on the ground, the reaction from the center would be to reiterate the importance of governing the country according to law and making sure that all local actors follow legal rules when they engaged with the public. So, at this point, the, the, the sheer amount of rhetorical commitment to this is so large that I think it's not even functionally feasible for the, for the party leadership to kind of like change course away from legality anytime soon. And I think that's probably pretty good because it's getting close to the point where this is a fully credible commitment.
1: So you think this accumulation of, of rhetorical commitments is the main evidence easy for this shift? I mean, have they made... No,
0: no, no. That's it's it's...
1: You said, yeah. you know, since 2014 this has been going on now, right? Yes. Uh, right. I mean, Yifat is, Zhiguo is... Yeah, It's a it's been a talking point. I hear it constantly. But... Is there is there maybe more explicit pronouncement that oh, yes. this is yeah okay let's let's yeah. see what that is.
0: Um, and so so, so the re- the rhetoric has gotten to gone I think to a critical mass at this point. The the actual measures on the ground I think are equal are almost equally powerful. Although the implementation is a bit more uneven, which is why amongst the academic community this is still a matter of some controversy. Right. So I would point to things like since 2014 there has been a complete revamping of the judiciary. And its overall political status within the government. So like when I was kind of interning at the at the, at the Supreme People's Court in two thousand and nine, you talked to judges and everyone. You know, judges back then, even the Supreme Court judges, didn't necessarily have a very high opinion of themselves, right. or the position of the overall judiciary within the party state. Like one conversation that I distinctly remember was a senior judge was telling me like everyone on the outside somehow rests their hopes of like Chinese rule of law. On the judiciary, and that's ridiculous because that's like placing this gigantic normative hope on a really weak and feeble institution. Right. that, doesn't, right, that right. That's not really geared up to actually carry the verdict.
1: They, but they have more spine now. I mean, you think that 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 they've been really
0: yes, yeah. The point is, that I think like the past eight years of reforms or nine years of reforms really has given them kind of like a different view on life. Um, since 2014, you know, like the government's made a concerted effort to raise their salaries give them a certain measure of like financial independence from parallel levels of governments. So previously it was the case that um, local courts and middle courts were subject to the direct budgetary con- controls of parallel levels of governments. And now all the budgetary control is being concentrated at the, at the provincial and central levels. So you're taking like, any kind of fiscal control that you know, mid to lower level governments had over the course, and giving the courts a certain kind of financial independence from these entities. Uh, at the same time, you're you're trying to beef up the professionalism of the court. You're trying to assist on higher educational credentials. You're trying to make sure that judges that are allowed to adjudicate are the ones with proper legal training. There's a huge emphasis on trying to legally ban uh, outside government executives from interfering with court decisions. Now, the, the controversy is that all of this beefing up of the judiciary, and what I would consider to even be beefing up the judiciary's functional independence, lends itself to a certain kind of glass-half-full, glass-half-empty kind of debate, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. On the one hand, yeah, there are actually real changes being implemented on the ground. On the other hand, you know, first of all, the starting point was pretty darn low, especially if you go all the way back to 1980. Um, so you can always, even in this day and age, point to various aspects in which the Chinese courts are not independent where they're subject to control from all kinds of governmental agencies externally. And so the reforms are certainly incomplete or they're not meant to be fully complete. But compared, I think, with what things were like 10 years ago, I think the progress has been quite salient. Nearly every single lawyer that I talk to, in China thinks that the courts run better, are more professional, more streamlined, more predictable more legalistic than they used to be. You know, like back in 2009 when I talked to a lawyer and I asked them, like, you know, like, if you were giving me advice on how to go into a civil case at the Beijing People's Court, like, well, what, what's the advice? He's like, well, of <laughs> course the first thing you got to do is bribe the judge. Exactly. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> right. Um, I, nowadays, if you talk to them, instead they'll say, actually, that's not only no longer necessary, it may not even be good because the judges will balk at that. And instead, it's much better to just get a good lawyer and get professional legal advice and actually, actually try to play the legal technicalities. The other aspect of this is that um, the courts have actually been given more substantive control to or some more substantive powers to kind of like play a check against local people's governments. So the most important thing is the government's dramatically expanded since around 2015, the jurisdiction of the courts over administrative actions by parallel levels of governments, and the most important thing that they've explicitly given the courts is the ability to review land takings by local governments. Now, land takings, as we all know, are pretty much the the purse strings yeah. of local governments, right? Like it's it's maybe it's most of their income, or at least it used to be most of their income. Probably still is.
1: And it still is. Yeah, it true.
0: still is, right? So. so by giving courts the ability to review land takings actions, you're you're really giving courts the ability to check a very very substantial portion of the fiscal power of local governments. And the end result of all this is, you know, the number of administrative litigation cases against governmental land takings has exploded from very low levels previously to now, like over the, in the span of five years between 2014 and 2019. It doubled the overall number of administrative litigation cases in China just on almost just on on the basis of that one kind of case alone. And uh, the win rates for that kind of case for that kind of cases have, have actually also have also gone up. Where like you're more likely to win now than you used to be. It used right. to be you probably won like 12 percent of the time. Now you're winning something like twenty something percent of the time. And while you still lose more than you win on average. I mean, that increase is not small. It means the courts are feeling somewhat emboldened to go against the interests of parallel governments. They're actually acting as a certain kind of political check uh, on their power. So to me, this is all the glass half full kind of thing. Like it's, there's a real progress. Um, There's been real good progress on the ground in the Chinese court arena. And I would expect that to continue uh, after COVID. Now, of course, if you take the glass half empty, you can always point to various imperfections you know, places where higher governmental authorities can still order the courts to pursue a certain kind of action, and so on and so forth. But, uh, but the thing is, you no, know, like those things have always been there, right? So they're not a symptom of things getting worse. They're just a, a symptom of some things not changing much in the direction that some people would prefer. Uh, but overall, like you know, the overall status of the courts is getting higher. Their overall performance is getting more professionalized. So I'm really inclined on this point to take the glass half full kind of view.
1: Well, great. I want to move on and talk about your other paper, but let me just remind everybody that this uh, this one is called Xi's Law and Order Strategy, the CCP's Quest for a Fresh Source of Legitimacy. It's a very brief essay in Foreign Affairs, and it was published in February, so definitely check that out. I should add
0: one thing, which is the... As is often the case with these magazines, the, the, the title is not... Wrong. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, t- I, I was going to... Yeah, I'm sure... Yeah, the Dan title is my editor's,
0: you. and I think it may have actually gotten me into a bit of trouble in China, because the name Xi Jinping was in the title, which got picked up by various kinds of uh, administrators who were fretting about whether it was... Like, like whether the, the use of the name meant a certain kind of content. I think once they... When, if they ever read the actual piece, they'll know that this is a relatively neutral piece.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah. Before I go on to, uh, and ask you about the other thing, I mean, I I've also been thinking about the foundations of of political legitimacy in China, and and I've been thinking about how they there might have been a shift. And I always enjoy my interactions with you because you are able to kind of step back and look at the kind of meta historical questions. So there was this notion that I've I've had that you know, for, look for the last hundred and eighty years, the question that's really been at the center of Chinese political intellectual life has been, you know, how do we attain wealth and power in a way that's consonant with our national identity or something like that and so it doesn't surprise yeah. me at all that that delivering those goods you know wealth power basic you know national dignity those would be the foundations of legitimacy that was the national quest that was the foundational quest and the central uh-huh. question for what you know we've called modern Chinese history and so you know with those things if not actually attained, then at least in sight. There is a new question that's really looming up and maybe a new set of questions. And and with those, perhaps a need for new foundations for political legitimacy, right, for yeah. postmodern Chinese history. So this has been sort of the idea I've been playing with. Um, I mean, I suspect that with the basic material needs met and sovereignty asserted and all that stuff, the party state really does kind of need to redefine its relationship with the people and, and vice versa, right? I
0: Yeah, I I, I think so. I mean— it doesn't need to, in the sense that like the people don't want more economic growth. The people will do. It's just going to get right, harder, no, and harder to actually deliver.
1: Um, but it's no longer just a developmental state, right? A, a developmental yeah, state can can kind of, I mean, it can operate on the fuel of performance legitimacy, and that almost alone, right? Yeah, yeah. But but now, I mean, that's that's not the case for a state that is now settled in among peers as sort of an established nation state, right?
0: Yeah, I, I yeah, I I I completely agree on that. I mean, I think the core thing here is that again, it's mainly that they 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 they're running a little bit not not quite fully. yet, yeah, like they still have more room to grow, but like they can start to see the ends the end game where at some point they're they're gonna get closer and closer to these developed countries, and then they're they're gonna recognize that as these developed countries all have had to deal with in the past however many years. You know, growth is not going to be the main theme of this society anymore. It's just because of obvious material constraints and also because of uh, population pressures that every single developed economy has faced. So yeah, they're going to have to change the narrative somehow. They're going to have, I mean, once growth slows down and you're not growing the pie all the time, you know, all kinds of pressures from inequality to quality of life to kind of like more bourgeois concerns with values and world views, are going to get more salient because, you know, growth I think they can...
1: already are. I think we're already seeing that reflected in a lot of the rhetoric of common prosperity and-, and Yes, exactly. Like that. It's already yeah. very much there. Yeah. The Co- quality common of growth. growth is a very, yes. very
0: huge theme. Yeah, ex- exactly. But then the question is how do you make that kind of thing actually exactly. yeah. resonate yeah. with the with the population. You know, like I think common, common prosperity is potentially very powerful
1: well, I'm going to have you back on to talk about, you know, somebody who always has really good, thoughtful perspectives on these big meta-historical questions. I don't want to get too far away from what we're talking about here, but I'll get you back on, and we'll talk about all this stuff after we've had Part. both had a chance to kind of chew on it and think about it. Uh, for now, though, let's let's look at the other paper, the one that you've sure. written with Yutian and. Uh, who is a Ph.D. candidate in politics at Princeton? Uh, who also has a law degree from Yale? That paper again is called "Pandemic State Building: Chinese Administrative Expansion in the Xi Jinping Era." So, first off, um, at what stage is this paper, and and where can people well, find it, it?
0: It's a working it's a working paper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so, so we mm-hmm. just we we threw it together over two months in the winter and. Um, Data collection took a little bit longer, but you know, like the writing took like a month and a half. Um, so it's just in a working working paper format. We're starting to send fielders out to possible publication b- venues, but it, you know, it'll, it'll take some time. For now, you can find it on SSRN. Uh, if you mm-hmm. just go on SSRN and search either for the title of the paper or my name or Yutian's name, you can find the paper under our profiles. So yeah, it's rough. It has lots of room for revision, and you know. Any kind of comments or questions from anyone is welcome at this stage.
1: Oh, great. Hopefully, yeah. some of my questions will spark some thinking. But uh, I think it's a really ambitious paper. It, it definitely tries to fill what, I mean, as you point out, is a pretty big hole in the, in the academic literature, whether in Chinese or in English. And I think it's totally understandable that, you know, this is a very recent phenomenon, you know, this expansion of controls during the pandemic. Yeah. So, of course, it hasn't been studied that much. But there's also evidently not been a whole lot written about local administration at the sub-district and community or, or neighborhood level, and, and the debates over the proper role of this lowest level during the recent years, you know, during Xi Jinping's years in power. So I found it really fascinating. Let's dive into this, this paper. So yeah. you described the situation in which even just a year before the outbreak of the pandemic, China's leadership was still quite divided over whether and to what extent the power of the government should reach down into the local level, to down to sub-districts and to neighborhoods. Yes. And there were you know, debates that went on through uh, throughout the first seven years of the Xi administration. But as anyone who either lived through the lockdowns uh, in Shanghai uh, uh, and many, many other Chinese cities can attest, some kind of a decision favoring expansion of local government was clearly made. Yeah, it was clearly and, made. Yeah. yeah, so we're going to focus our discussion about the paper on the the logic behind that decision, uh, it's it's its implementation and its consequences. So first, I want to ask you about this. What were things like before this expansion? What were the powers of subdistrict governments and of neighborhood committees? you know this we're talking about or or streets or or right, right. communities yeah, or yeah. yeah. Ju right yeah,, uh, how were they funded? How are they supervised? What were they mainly tasked with doing? And maybe let's start with sub districts
0: right, right. so. There, I think, really, are three phases to this, to, to this entire story. One is pre two thousand twelve, and then is, there's two thousand twelve to, to two thousand nineteen, where you know, like, I think, yeah, like as you say, there was a certain amount of uncertainty as to whether the government was going to take a plunge and how deeply was it going to take a plunge. And then post two thousand nineteen, where post two thousand twenty, where everything was obviously forced. And the government just took the plunge to almost the deepest deepest extent possible right away. Yeah. Um, so prior to 2012, or to perhaps some people would date it a little bit earlier, but around 2011 to 2012, there was a wave of governmental interest in thinking, what exactly should we do with sub-districts? Now, sub-districts up until this past year, even now, they're not necessarily a legally mandated universal level of governments. They're, in a sense, seen as a delegation would, like agency of district governments that are below district governments. And so essentially, district governments have a certain kind of like discretion as to whether to delegate power to sub-districts. Yeah,
1: that, that was something that was really surprising to me in your, in your paper. I, I, there's yeah. no formal definition of what their administrative role was. And there there's like 9,000 of them uh, yes. across China. It's just nuts. Uh, they, were, they were created and, I guess, directed... As needed by, by, you know, sort of on an odd ad hoc basis, right, by city yes. and district governments. Yeah,
0: they were basically, you know, like, when districts get too large for their own traditional methods of control and administration, they create these new subdivisions to monitor at closer distance a certain patch of the district. Okay. Um, so, like, the place right of the Beijing Haidan District created a number of these and in between the 1990s and, two, and, and 2010s. And the district that that my that PKU, Peking University falls under, which is where my family lives, has been subject to like a pretty consistent, well, was subject to a pretty consistent like redistricting and redrawing of boundaries uh, during the early two thousands. So these things lacked definitive shape; they didn't have much of like a statutory mandate as to how and to what extent they should behave and do what. so so which meant that they were always kind of awkward right like hmm. you know they they varied from place to place depending on, on what their powers and functions would be um and you know like not everyone at the at the district level was not necessarily happy with the way they function and so there's always a, a large amount of debate over whether these things should actually even exist at all and what they if they do exist what they actually should be, should be doing if you if you look at the debates around 2010 the the surprising thing is one of the papers that I read, which is really quite striking, like the guy was summarizing the, the literature on sub districts and the kind of urban management literature. And it was like actually it now seems that the the more popular view is that we should just get rid of some of this like rid of these things huh. altogether and reconcentrate formal power at the district level and as formalized that. So that was kind of a state of the field around 2010 to 2012, there was quite a bit of uncertainty Permeating from the within the bureaucracy to outside of the bureaucracy over what to do with these things. And then around 2012, you know, once the new regime takes over, there's clearly a signal sent that we want to make these sub-districts more function. We want to give them more powers, more authority. We want to make them more formalized and permanent in how they function. Um, So there are discussions about, you know, like sub-districts provide kinds of various kinds of services to local communities. We should beef that service provision aspect up. Um, And then alternatively, the more controversial thing is, well, what about the coercive side of government power, which is the law enforcement side, the administrative law enforcement side of things? And starting with 2012, there are various documents expressing a political inclination to have city and district level governments delegate more powers more law enforcement powers to the sub-district. Um, so previously, you know, like the the, the the way the role that sub-districts played in the overall law enforcement apparatus was mainly that they were kind of like an informational agency. They, they, they kept an eye out for trouble on the ground, right. and they sent signals back up to the center or higher levels of government asking for law enforcement personnel to come down and deal with issues. They didn't necessarily have any independent agency of their own that actually exercised.
1: And when they did, when they did try their hand at it, it was not exactly popular. I mean, listeners who might not have lived in Chinese cities maybe don't know all about this, but you know there are these Chengguan, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. who are, are just loathed and despised almost uniformly.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so there, there's a te- te- technical difference to be drawn, which is you know Chengguan is a kind of like a top-down agency that's basically created at the city level and then imposed all the way down. Okay. So the Chengguan that were operating at the sub-districts prior to around two thousand fourteen right, right. were really they took their orders from officials at the district level, not from the subdistrict governments per se, right? So they operated at the subdistrict level, but they they were really On part orders of a, from the district, yeah they, right. they, they were part of a command chain that that really had everything held at the district district level or above. So okay, the, so the,
1: let me let and, me just cut you off here for a, you know, So your contention is that. The center, even prior to the outbreak of COVID, COVID was, was set on expanding administratively in this downward direction. It yeah, wanted one, one to... the,
0: Yeah, it was at least seriously considering expanding. Okay.
1: So, so it had, yeah. Let me, let me put the counterfactual. Though. So if there hadn't been a pandemic, would we still be looking today at significant downward expansion of administrative capacity?
0: Probably not. Right. Oh, that, OK. That...
1: So, so COVID did matter.
0: Yeah, okay. The thesis of the paper, and this is perhaps a point of disagreement with some other people who study this. Like some of my friends who study urban, like like uh, local government law in China, would would actually want to say that the commitment to expanding had been made before before COVID. And I would say perhaps at some abstract level that's correct. Where the central decision to pursue expansion down to the subdistrict level in terms of law enforcement was probably made before the pandemic. But in terms of actual implementation, the hesitation pre-2019 it's just obvious yeah right like there wasn't that much that changed on the ground in most major cities prior to 2019 there were experimental launches here and there usually they were rolled back after a while like a lot of this is simply because district level governments are not that eager to, to to delegate their own powers to 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 to, to these subordinate entities they, they don't want to like dilute their own power right
1: Right, right, right. So,
0: right, right, right. so you know, like for, for example, like Beijing is perhaps the most obvious example. Like Beijing experimented with this delegate, delegating effort starting from 2017 in Chaoyang District. As far as anyone could tell, they didn't have a ton of impact. And then around 2019, they just like wrote up and set, like wrote up shop and declared victory by implementing this uh, new system, which they called they the whistleblowing system. Right, that, right, right. That they said would actually realize the goals of the central government's directive. But if you look at how this, the whistleblowing system actually functioned, it still was. Some districts would whistleblow whenever there, whenever there was trouble, and then district level law enforcement entities would send their personnel down to the solicitor level to actually deal with the issues. So it was not actually functioning different from what was going on before. So clearly there was hesitation and pushback at some level, perhaps at the City at district levels against this uh, new initiative and implementation was slow hesitant. the central government didn't seem interested in enforcing things it was you know like beijing's frankly pretty half-assed experiment met with quite effusive praise from mm-hmm. the center saying that this is actually quite a good experiment others should follow the should follow, should follow its example so clearly the, their the overall attitude was just kind of fuzzy and even if there had been some kind of general mood towards expansion it didn't have concrete shape, nor did it have any kind of concrete implementation in a widespread manner. You have COVID and everything changes. Within a year of COVID hitting, by like the spring and summer of 2021, delegation is just like all over the place. Every major city because it's delegating huge amounts of actual law enforcement powers down to the sub subdistrict level. They create these direct, like, huge charts of what powers are actually being delegated down to the general uh, level. And the charts are just quite something to look at, like out of a total count of like 400-something total items of law enforcement authority held previously by the district, something like 270 were being sent down, uh, like a full two-thirds were being sent down to the sub-districts. So things moved really fast and really really concretely post-COVID, whereas they certainly had not been doing so pre-COVID.
1: Right. I mean, in hindsight now, I mean, because we've of course seen the experiment of COVID, uh, it's hard to imagine that there could have ever been any debate uh, at whether it was really in doubt that the party-state wanted to exert control all the way down. So, um, you know, we we've t- you talk about some of the misgivings. You know, what were some of the reasons why people were hesitant? Uh, principal agent problem is one of the right, the, right. The so the, yeah, the
0: principal agent problem is the thing that everyone talks about, like or whatever. Whatever anyone talks to local government problems, everyone always talks about the problems. We're no exception to that because it really is the main thing. I mean, the basic logic of this is that the larger the state, the more expansive it gets, the more deeper it penetrates the society. The harder it is for a policymaker at the center to actually control the actions of your local agents. Right. They're more distant from you. They're going to be operating out of your media line of sight. You have to set up various kinds of monitoring institutions to know what's going on down there. And the thing is, that kind of thing is not just a matter of you not having full control. If they mess up, it comes back to you in terms of social anger, anxiety, unrest, and so on and so forth. So until you have full trust over local agents, you're not always that eager to give them powers, right? Like giving them powers might make you more equipped to control society, but it also makes you a little bit like less well-equipped to actually deal with control within your own governmental bureaucracy. Well, Tyson, uh,
1: you talk about how there needed to be a lot of groundwork laid for this kind of an administrative expansion. And, yes. you know Because of this concern about oversight, a concern that there would be bad actors among the local government officials. Millions of them, though, were censured. Millions were prosecuted in the course of the anti-corruption drive. How yes. important was the anti-corruption drive in setting the stage for being able to then downward delegate like this?
0: Right. Okay, that's a great question. Like the, the, That, to me, I think, is one of the lynches of this entire thing. Right? Without the overall legality push that C has made over the past decade, I don't think that this kind of expansion of governmental authority really could have been implemented. Right? See, and that's
1: where this dovetails with what your your paper was. Yeah, I mean, your, me. this pa- why this paper connects directly with what you wrote about in Foreign Affairs.
0: Exactly. Right. So, like, like there, there's a certain kind of eternal design to my work that manifests itself pretty much everywhere. I, 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 I poke my head. So, yeah, exactly. I'm like There's a certain kind of functional reliance of governmental expansion on your ability to make sure that local bureaucrats are following the rules. And you make sure that local bureaucrats are following the rules by making things more legalistic within the bureaucracy. Creating more clear rules, creating an expectation that they're going to follow the rules, um, giving other agencies and courts, the ability to kind of monitor them and make sure that they're actually following the rules. Now, the downside of all this is that this may, in some ways, uh, reduce corruption and abuse of power at the local level, but it's also really costly, right? Because yeah. you, you, what what this means is, is that every expansion of local governmental authority at the sub-district or neighborhood organization level is really a double investment of cost. The first cost is just you have to create new agencies and hire your bureaucrats and train them and you know like give them powers and so on and so forth. The second cost is you have, then you have to create a separate layer of monitoring that allows you to to know what these guys are actually doing and allow you to actually exert some kind of top down control over them. So. Overall, that kind of bureaucratic infrastructure is very expensive to build. So you can imagine, you know, China right now is not exactly in very happy fiscal circumstances. So this kind of thing has put substantial burdens on the state.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So one more question before we get into the actual changes that took place during the pandemic. So. Yeah. Have there been changes in the way that leaders of these local level organizations are chosen and, and when did those changes take place? Because I know that when I lived in China, you know, there was a rough and very clearly imperfect form of democracy where pretty much anyone technically could stand for election. Yes. There were even, you know, foreign residents that stood for election in their neighborhood communities. Yes. Uh, how democratic in practice did that ever get and right, how things right, changed right. as far as you know?
0: Right. right. So so to answer that we have to actually kind of just draw the distinction between sub-districts and neighborhood Yeah, yeah, committees. we didn't
1: actually get to neighborhood committees, and yeah, I, I, I figured Goddard, we, yeah. we could talk about them quite a bit during, you know, the the post-COVID or the pandemic era, right. but yeah, but yeah, go ahead, please, yeah, so, so make that the, distinction.
0: The, right, the distinction is, you know, sub-districts are still governmental entities, they're full-blown governmental entities. Even if
1: they're not, they weren't officially recognized until the organization law and
0: yeah, even if they had this nebulous legal status, there's still you know, delegation agencies basically sent out by the, by the districts, and they have full official, official bureaucratic break, and so on and so forth. Um, so the, so you know, like leaders of sub-districts were always chosen in the usual top-down, appointed manner through the and so on and so forth. Neighborhood organizations prior to 2012, and even today, nominally speaking, they are self-governance entities of urban communities. Right, they're meant to be a way for ur- urban neighborhoods to govern themselves,
1: which right.
0: meant that... So, so this is the urban parallel to villages in the rural setting. Village officials are supposed to represent the interests of their village constituents, and so they're elected. And so hence, by the same logic, uh, neighborhood organization chiefs... You know, every every most urban neighborhoods in China have one of these things. After, after almost single one has one of these things. There's a neighborhood organization that, frankly, prior to, to like 2015, I didn't even know where my neighborhood organization actually was. I just never dealt with it. They were invisible completely. But there is a there was always a neighborhood organization chair, and the chair was elected. Or, as you say, any local resident had the ability to stand for election. There were pretty weak and vague, like vague criteria on who could actually be elected. And it was while not fully democratic in process, it was pretty like grassroots oriented. It was pretty organic. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. There were always some directives, even in the pre-2012 era, that you know, like the party had to maintain a certain semblance of political standards, right? Like you couldn't elect a, someone who was openly hostile to the party state to, to, to that kind of position. Although something even that apparently happened periodically when things got out of control. Yeah. But the idea was that there there would be some monitoring, but the monitoring would come with a pretty light touch. Post-2012, and especially post two thousand. And 20, there have been distinctive moves towards imposing some, med- like a pretty robust measure of top down vetting over mm. who can actually stand for election. And I think by now, like post pandemic, given that these neighborhood organizations are now essentially just like, you know, they still have a veneer of self governing, self governance, but functionally speaking, they're really just extensions of the, the administrative states, right? At, the, at this point. Right, right. Um, you know, like who actually leads them as a matter of great significance. Uh, to urban government, so, so at this point, certainly they're not going to let any random Joe from the neighborhood send for election and run risk that this guy actually gets elected. So now, they pretty much, you know, like, I, I, as far as I can tell, a higher authorities send down a list, perhaps with some con- like with consultation from, with consultation with local neighborhoods, people like people or organizations they drop a list of approved candidates yeah, yeah. Cut. and send them down for election. Um, I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. So you have choice. Like sometimes you have some real choice. What is a choice between party approved candidates?
1: Yeah. So let's get into the actual changes in local governance after the outbreak of COVID in, in, you know, February of 2020. Yeah. I think a lot of us have kind of a short memory and we forget that there was actually a lot of praise. That was directed at China's display of competent state capacity in the spring yes. of 2020. Yes, yeah. exactly. We actually exactly. forget that you know China faced the yeah. same situation that much of the rest of the world did. This really fast spreading virus. It was in every province, as you point out. But whatever may have happened later, at least in the early months, China's containment of the disease was remarkable, and it was you know a, a manifestation of this administrative expansion that you guys talk about. So uh, you know it, it seemed to you know to be an early victory. Uh, let's can we talk about the importance of some things like the health code system that China implemented? How how critical was that to the success?
0: I mean, that was the lynch eventually of the entire system. So certainly by two thousand twenty two, like, that was the core thing that made this entire thing run. Um, I would say, like I, I completely agree. Like, even today, I'm not entirely sure we shouldn't see Chinese um, pandemic controlled has at least a some kind of perhaps now weakened but still it's a it's a success story compared to some other comparison sets right like it's um it's not quite the the overwhelming success story that it seemed to be in 2021 but it's still you know, like on a per capita basis even by the more hostile estimates china probably has suffered a quarter of the deaths that the u.s has and so on and so forth so you know the legacy of this entire thing is complicated but the thing that made the entire thing run, initially, it was basically without the health code, they had to do it more of a brute force. So they set right. checkpoints, they checked your documents, they looked at your tickets, figured out where you were, and then just you know tracked everything to your personal government identification number. And that was a slow and often bulky process. Starting in 2021, they designed various kinds of new health codes. And this, these are things that are, these are apps. These are mini apps that are usually tied to the WeChat app. WeChat app on your phone if you're in China. And everyone in China has a WeChat, right? Yeah. yeah it's basically your entire life. But what the mini app inside the WeChat app would give you is that you tie this to your personal information, your, your ID number, your, your facial recognition data. And then it links you to a health code. Now, the code is basically a Q code that you scan wherever you go, right? Mm-hmm. And it comes with a couple colors, you know, green means normal, yellow means that you've been exposed, red means you've been highly exposed. Usually anything with that's yellow or red means that your movement is restricted.
1: Because it has your geolocation data.
0: Exactly. Right. And so the way that they would use this is, is that everywhere you went, into every building, uh, pretty much you know, every taxi you took, the subway, the bus, you always had to scan your, your, your health code first. So that the government pretty much always knew where exactly you were unless you were just wandering around the street. Um, and so, any indoors thing, you would have to scan your your health code. So, which meant that once there was any kind of outbreak, like a couple of people here and there, they would know almost exactly who was in that locality at a certain time of day. And so, they could track you to within like an hour and a block of pretty much any any activity of yours. And so, then they would, you know, depending on who you had been exposed to, how you had been exposed. Issue various orders from various kinds of either testing or quarantine. So yellow health code usually meant that you had to do a couple of tests every day for a couple of days. Uh, red health code usually meant that you had to stay at your home for a couple of days and somebody would ch- come and check on you every single day. So the health code was essentially kind of like a marker on you that allowed the government to basically track you in time and space. So now yeah. there's no know exactly where you were, pretty much.
1: I can't even imagine how Americans re- would react to the imposition of such a system.
0: Well, I mean, so the, 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 there's there's kind of like a, an anecdote that I have to tell about this, which is around 2020, in April of 2020, a couple of my colleagues here at the law school were working with the New Haven city government to implement some, some kind of smartphone-based location tracking for individuals there were, they were contact tracing in a, in a less intrusive manner you could just kind of everyone would install kind of like a new haven tracking app on their phone and the app would tell the government more or less where you were and allow the government to to, to ask you to test or quarantine on a more targeted basis um now you can guess the reaction this actually got in new haven <laughs> and yeah. new haven is a relatively you know, new haven is a very liberal place and where people we'll tolerate relatively larger amounts of governmental intrusion into their lives but this was still easily enough to make everyone hate my colleagues um, for, this, for, <laughs> for helping with this. And the government got huge amounts of pushback on this. And by June of 2020, the entire idea was just scrapped. Yeah. So, yeah, it did. Yeah. it's not something that would work in the U.S.,
1: so, so, Tai Su, for ordinary people living in China, the most visible evidence of this administrative expansion, besides the app on their phone, was yeah. the ubiquity of the Dabais, these people with oh, yeah. full-body PPE who <laughs> seemed to be just you know, absolutely everywhere. Where did
0: they all come from? Who was putting on the suits? Who did they work directly for? Right. So, that that's complicated because people put on suits for all kinds of different reasons. There's the medical worker who usually often is, at least in my experience, back from being, being in Beijing for a couple months that summer. Those people are actually you know, personnel taken away from local hospitals and asked to do testing in this part of the district on this day or that day. Then there are various kinds of security personnel. Then there are you know, neighborhood organization personnel that maintain order of testing sites and so on and so forth. And they all they also dress in these big, white, puffy suits. So that, I was, you know, it's not just the health workers. It's also- Right, right. Administrators, law enforcement personnel, police. Um, one of the interesting things is by the end of 2022, but by the end of zero COVID, a lot of these neighborhood organizations had created their own kind of law enforcement teams. Um.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I mean, because you know, look, 20- 2022, you've got the Omicron variant beginning to spread all over China. Uh, you start to need more coercive tools, right? Yeah. Uh so where did the Jiu go when it needed enforcement muscle? I mean, did it was it able to tap Chengguan or did it
0: Well, I mean yes yes. it um, tapped Chengguan, it tapped the police. You know, in Shanghai, for example, in two thousand twenty one the city government created a system where you know, every single neighborhood organization would have essentially kind of like a police mini station assigned to it. Uh, but they would also have to, because that was not enough manpower, so they would also have to recruit volunteers. And these would usually be, you know, like the, the, the security guards uh, for buildings, the various kinds of ballade. Or in, in other it's just simply volunteers that had a certain kind of social connection to neighborhood organizations. So it was lots of recruitment from across society. Now, that, I think, is not permanent. Uh, I think that was kind of like a... Pandemic everything, then most of these guys have now gone back to their usual jobs, if they're still there. So it was a mixture of more permanent, actual law like law enforcement staff, like patrolmen or the police, paired with a perhaps even larger number of just like informal volunteers. Well, this this depends on which city you're talking about and which area of the city. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Okay. Last set of questions have to do with technology for you. I mean, we already talked about the importance of the QR codes and everything like that. But what I want to understand is what role technology plays in the new post-pandemic power structure. I mean, because, you know, on the one hand, I can see an argument that and neighborhood organizations are going to be able to use technologies, everything from, you know, like these... QR codes to biometrics and surveillance cameras yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to do more with less in terms of the manpower they have. I mean they will be able to fill in the gaps that they have of of capacity, right? But yes. on the other hand, you could also argue that with this technology at their disposal, the already powerful tiers above these organizations, the city level, they would be able to exert control over much larger populations without the, you know, the 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 lower layers like the Jedi and the Shu um, what do you think? Yeah. where do you come down on this?
0: Well, so I come down on the side of well, some things are not permanent. You know, like the, the the health codes are not permanent. right? Like right now, I think no one scans codes going to places in China anymore. Um, I think the government wisely decided that like that that became such a symbol of the control that once social engineering reached a certain kind of breaking point, yeah, at least you have to retreat on certain kinds of like really salient aspects of control. Um, that said right, like the expansion of authority of control over neighborhood organizations the use of neighborhood organizations as administrative entities um, the delegation of law enforcement powers the sub districts i'd say that's all there to say and that's there to say because i mean yeah the technologies give you a certain amount of monitoring capacity at the district level but in terms of the day-to-day actual control like fast reaction mm-hmm. right the, the ability to process the data you collect in real time and know what to make of it, that's still pretty localized, right? Like, you know, a district in China is often like a million people or more. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. If yeah, you centralize
0: be. all the data there, the human processing of the data, the identification of who is who and what to do with who, how to assess any person's risk level. I mean, you, you we, we often think of like AI as possible too. AI is not there. Yet. It's still human for the most part. And- because of that, right, given that you need local knowledge, you know, who's the troublemaker in this locality, and so on and so forth, you're, you still need the local manpower that some districts and, local and neighborhood organizations provide to you. That's not going to change. And right. I would also say that because of their experience with the social unhappiness in November and December, they're aware that like lockdowns made a pretty large portion of the urban population pretty unhappy. And so given that level of like more Thing you know, on like that 10 that kind of tensor social environment that they're now operating, in, I don't think they're going to feel free to loosen real ability to control at the local level anytime soon, right? Like, right. The- I
1: remember in the first week of December, right after you know they dropped zero COVID, uh, there were a lot of people who were saying, Hey, look, they actually are willing to give up social controls, like they're, they're, they're dismantled this health code system so quickly. But you guys argue that it's actually not just larger and more comprehensive and tighter, but it's actually. Here to stay. It's permanent, right?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, they—they they are willing to dismantle certain kinds of social controls. Like right, right. That's per, so. So, yeah, so you can dismantle pandemic level movement controls without getting rid of your like administrative infrastructure at the local level that gives you the fast response caller. You had Should a nice say, phrase
1: that said, "I it said," I uh, let mean, let me, let's find this line. Right covid prevention measures could not last forever not even in china but the expansion of local governmental authority was made of more durable institutional material that's 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 about right to me <laughs> pretty yeah, durable institutional
0: material yeah it yeah. is pretty durable cuz it, it's also it has to be because they're dealing with a less happy population now like it'll take a couple of years for the population to recover um to its former level of happiness and trust or whatever it, it, the government. Don't worry. So,
1: don't worry, because there's legality now. Oh, so well, there's <laughs> yeah. But
0: I, I don't, in my defense, I also say that legality probably can slug the entire whole left no, by no, no, economic no. growth, right.
1: So I was just give, giving you a hard time. No, <laughs> no,
0: but but it's, it's a fair It's, 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 it's a sure question. I mean, like given the fact that state society relations are probably a bit more tense right now than they were just like two years ago, especially at this point, you probably in their minds they probably can reach the Ford. To fully withdraw from the presence on the ground, right? Like, you don't, you don't like loosen the floodgates right at the moment where you see the flood rising.
1: Right. Very good, Taisu. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your really fascinating work. Um, I want to move on to recommendations, uh, but first, first let's uh, uh, remind our listeners that if you like the work that we do with the Siddha Podcast and you want to help out. Couple of ways to do that, but the, the most important. I mean, you know, obviously we have this uh, crowdfunding thing going on right now, still, where we are taking investors, and for you know a relatively small amount, you can buy a piece of the company, and you know you can find all the information about that on our website. But uh, you you can also just become an access member. That really helps us out quite a bit. Uh, you know, you get the great newsletter, you get access to all you know unlimited uh, articles on the website, and, of course, you get the Sinica podcast delivered early on Monday rather than having to wait until Thursday. So if you want to help us out, that's the best way to, to do it. We're still running this special, a dollar for your first month. Okay, let's move on to recommendations. <laughs> Taisu, what do you have for us?
0: Well, okay, so... Uh... Admittedly, I'm a nerd who doesn't really have much of a life. Uh, you know this about <laughs> me, and so my recommendations come mainly in the range of like books to read. Um, That's good. I like books. Things like things of this nature. So, it depends on what your tastes are. Like, apologies for moving away from that for a second. Like, the the going to freeze, but I'm still, uh, just pulling up this list that I drew up. So it depends on what you guys want. Like, if you want, you know, like reading reading material for either philosophy or politics or so on and so forth. Ah, uh, there's lots out there to recommend these days. Like, what I'm reading right now is, um, for example, like I'm reading quite a bit of the late David Graeber. I don't know if yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, I should, sure, yeah, David Graeber, of course.
0: Yeah, various books of his, I and mean, like the more popular ones are the the one that he published last year. Right, Without, just before like, he died. Just before he died, but like, I, We're I challenging
1: I, I, all, all these ideas that early, you know, human art anthropologists had about uh, civilizations emergence. Yeah, that that was interesting.
0: Yeah, and I I find that book good, but it's not so terribly interesting to me. So, like what's your
1: favorite book. David Graeber book? Then?
0: I like the Utopia of Rules a little bit. Mm. Um, so you know, it's it's a it's a pretty incisive creative way to look at you know, frankly given the topic that we're on um bureaucracies and technological bureaucracies and how bureaucracies function using various kinds of technologies and of course you know given Graeber, he can't resist making fun of these kinds of things so the title is actually called the utopia of rules on uh, technology stupidity and the secret joys of bureaucracy uh, <laughs> sounds quite appropriate i think given the topic um uh, in, in terms of China related uh, reading, I don't know how much of a taste for like history books you guys have. I've got uh, lots, yeah. <laughs> so, some of my, like, there, there's a trio of history books that have recently come out on, on Chinese state building uh, that actually speak pretty well to each other. And I would recommend two of those. The third I, I offered myself, so I will leave that to the side. Uh, but the two books that I would recommend if you're interested in reading about the history of the Chinese state. And its relationship to the Chinese population is one is uh, Fa Wang's book. Yuhua is a professor of political science.
1: Yeah, he's great. He's great at
0: Harvard. Um, whose most recent book is the is the uh, rise and fall of imperial China. Yes, yeah. it's, it's a possibly broad topic, but it's really about the uh, changing, the shift, the, sh- the shifting power balance between state and society in the most recent one thousand years of the Chinese bureaucratic state. Uh, The other one is Mara Dykstra's recent book. Mara is currently still a professor at Caltech Mm -hmm. teaching history, but she's moving to Yale in the fall, I think, full-blown. The start here in the history department, she's our new kind of China historian. So she has a new book. It's called Uncertainty and the Empire of Routine, which is about basically, exactly, given that we're talking about principal agent problems, in the urban urban, urban Chinese government's context, this book is about basically the construction of internal, monitor, like internal monitoring and internal bureaucratic control apparatuses in the mid to late Qing. And I think it's a fantastic book. Now, uh, I have a book that came out recently myself. Kaiser mentioned this, The, the Ideological Foundations of Mostly Taxation, which is in conversation with both of these books uh, on a lot of themes about state building and state capacity. So those are some professional books that I would recommend. Now, uh, given excellent. given that I want to seem a little bit more fun than just that, um, <laughs> well, I also have some fiction fiction recommendations for people. Okay. Um, depends on whether you read Chinese or not. If you don't read Chinese, I imagine by this point, almost everyone listening to your podcast probably has read the Three Body Problem or the yeah, English sure. from this. If they haven't, I'd still recommend that as like the best piece of fiction to come out of China in probably the past two decades. Uh, have and you I seen see
1: the wh- tense the Tencent? Uh, uh- television show based on I it? Have. Yeah? I have.
0: I I would recommend that too. I think yeah, that it's is good. I think that, that is an excellent written like, recreation in the first book. It's a, it gets a little bit slow in the later episodes. It's but very still, slow,
1: yeah. Yeah, but it's still quite, like, it's deep. It it's faithful. It's re- reasonably faithful.
0: Yeah. yeah, and it also captures the intellectual weight of the entire thing. Right. Yeah. Like, it actually yeah. gets that, that kind of intellectual seriousness. Um, beyond that, for those who only read Chinese, um, there is a set of books called the Jiangnan Sanbuqi, so the Lower mm-hmm. Yangtze Trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Chinese uh, novel written by the by this novelist called Gu Fei. Mhm. it's three, it has three parts um respectively Sanbuqi yeah, should. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, this is honored with the 2015 Modern Xue Prize, which is the highest prize for Chinese fiction. Uh, and it's about kind of like the history of a family of a, of a group of individuals um, from pretty much like the late, late late imperial times all the way up to the early PRC. It has wow. a certain it has a certain kind of feel that's similar to a hundred years of solitude. Mm-hmm. It has that kind of like mysticism attached to it. The constant moving between imaginary and real worlds. The mystical attitude. In that sense, you could think it's a little bit like Moya, but I find these books they're better than what Moya has recently written in that they, they actually have a plot,
1: and oh. they have a, they have
0: a, they have a pretty gripping plot, well defined you know, characters, and not just the atmosphere and language that Moya manages to create. So I'd recommend that and for anyone who, who cares about reading kind of like a set of historical novels about China that particularly cap, well, captures really well. So uh, the Jiangnan
1: Three-Part yeah. by by Ge okay. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. Great recommendations. All right. Uh, let me just throw a couple of mine in really quickly. One is that I am right now reading Assignment China, an oral history of American journalists in the People's Republic, uh, which is by Mike Chinoy, who is a very well-known correspondent for CNN, now based in Hong Kong. And Jeremy and I will be interviewing him for this show about the book. So uh, it's part of the reason I'm reading it. I would read it anyway, because it's, it's fascinating. It's just put together... Uh, basically, chronological major events that touch on U.S.-China relations, and some just on, you know, domestic Chinese politics, and it's just, uh, you know, a couple of paragraphs from all the different journalists who reported it. Their reminiscences about reporting that story, uh, and it's it's fascinating. It's really really interesting to to re- read how it's remembered and 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 uh, what people's impressions were as they we were on the ground, notebooks in hand, reporting these events. Uh, so I, I recommend it. And it'd be great if you guys get keep a hold of it and read it before you listen to the interview, because I'm sure you'll get a lot more out of it when you hear. Uh, so that's my main recommendation. The other is, uh, this is just sort of really off the wall. I bought myself a pound of beeswax not too long ago, uh, because I wanted to make some I wanted to make some uh, some bow wax, you know, out of natural materials for bow strings. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I f- suddenly started, I like, you know, beeswax, it's this lovely substance. It smells really nice. And I, I thought, you know, there's all sorts of other uses for it, right? So um, I just went down this rabbit hole of making various s- things for, for around the house, everything from furniture polish to, you know, foot cream and hand lotion uh, out of, Things that that I already had mostly, you know, around the house, you know, mineral oil or turpentine or, or uh, you know, olive oil or avocado oil or almond oil, uh, you know, like what, just like essential oil stuff. I've got you know nice soft hands now from all of my lotioning from uh, <laughs> my 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 own hand homemade beeswax based. Okay. Uh, yeah, so check it out. So. None of your well, beeswax, all of mine, all right. <laughs> I
0: actually have a considerable amount of beeswax at home. I've never known what to do with it. But Well, okay, now, now you that... know. Now you know no, what to do. If you no, have some
1: wooden furniture that needs polishing, if you have calloused heels, I can set you up. <laughs> all right. Sounds awesome. All right, Taisu. Thank you so much. I mean, once again, let me just remind everybody what the, the, the papers, uh, the, the article in foreign affairs is called Xi's Law and Order Strategy, the CCP's Quest for a Fresh Source of Legitimacy. And the paper that uh, was written, I actually mentioned two papers. One is your one with Yi Fu and Yi Ching called Does Legality Produce Legitimacy? And the other, which is, is of course, the main paper that we discussed uh, during this is called Pandemic State Building, Chinese Administrative Expansion in the Xi Jinping Era. And you can get that on SSRN, if you just look up Tai Su Zhang or uh, his co-author Yu Tian An. All right, thank you so much. All right, thank
0: you, so, thank you so much, Kaiser. Pleasure. It's a real pleasure, pleasure
1: talking to you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of The Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at TheChinaProject.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at TheChinaProj and be sure to check out all the shows in The Seneca Network. Thanks for listening. and We'll see you next week. Take care.